Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Hello, welcome. Welcome to the Financial Times this evening. I do not belong to the Financial Times, but I am what you might call a coalition partner of the Financial Times for the benefit of this evening. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. The partnership tonight is the FT and the Cass Business School and Barclays. And we're here for one of our regular club events to which we also invite illustrious, good and great on a one-off basis. We're here to discuss a topic close to everybody's heart, close to the FT's heart, which is what's great and innovative and bright about business. And I'm going to hand you over to Lionel Barber, the editor of the Financial Times, who not only has his paper and various integrated media cover all aspects of business in its glory, but he runs the business of the FT uh, in a very bright way, I think people would agree. Everything that is said on the panel this evening is being recorded and is on the record, and therefore anything any of you might wish to share with the group when the time comes will also be fully attributable. So I leave that thought for you to make your comments fabulously bright and to say thank you for spending some of your evening with us. And here's Lionel. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much, Julie. I thought we'd agreed that this was going to be on deep background as far as I was concerned, but there we are. Uh, we have a, a great topic tonight. It's, it's not the fact that the euro is crashing. Uh, it's not the fact that the big society is taking uh, little strides forward. Uh, it's about business, as Julia was saying. Uh, bright ideas where business is leading the way. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, steady your glasses. This is going to be a positive discussion. And we have a great panel uh, of distinguished contributors, including our very own um, Martin Lukes, Missy, sorry, Lucy Kellaway. But before uh, we hear from Lucy, I'm going to introduce, first of all, to my far left, Dame Clara Furth, who, as we know, is the former chief executive of the London Stock Exchange, is now doing a number of different jobs. I was just saying uh, how she was contributing to the firm smack of governance uh, in uh, Britain today. She's a director of the Legal and General Group, Numura International, and Numura Europe Holdings. So, five minutes from Clara, Dame Clara. Okay, thank you, Lionel. Um, it's very good to be here. Um, thank you for having me. Um, and it's uh, an opportunity, obviously, to share some thoughts with you from the perspective of the financial services industry. As Lionel has said, um, I'm now a non-executive director, and so my view is informed by sitting on two financial services boards. Legal and General is, as you may know, the single largest investor in UK PLC. It owns a small chunk of the FTSE 100, and I also sit on the board of Namura International and Namura Europe Holdings. Namura, as you may know, is what we might call a pure investment bank. In other words, it's not a deposit taker. It acquired the non-US businesses of Lehman in September 2008 and is today number one in UK equities and number two um, in institutional research. So not a bad result in 18 months. 
Recently, I've also committed to spending more time in support of the City UK, which is the new independent membership body for promoting UK-based financial services. So that should be fun. We certainly do live in interesting times. Um, in my remarks this evening, I'd like to make three points. The first one is that bright ideas in financial services will play a vital role in finding solutions to global social challenges, such as extreme poverty and disease in developing countries. Secondly, that as government and regulators redefine their relationship with financial services firms, we must ensure that regulation does not stifle competition and innovation, the drivers of productivity and growth. And finally, that despite the very real challenges that the financial crisis is presenting, the industry really does matter to the UK and the global economies that it supports. London does have the largest international trading flows of any city anywhere in the world because the world comes to London to do business with the world. So the current appetite for backlash regulation is therefore both counterproductive and foolhardy. There is no doubt that the financial services industry as a whole has suffered real damage to its reputation in the last few years. This is despite the fact that in reality, much of the industry was not directly involved in the banking crisis. Indeed, the wider industry continues to function and is a major source of stability to the economy. For example, a record 83 billion was raised through new and further issues on the London Stock Exchange in 2009, and that was an increase of 16% on the total for 2008, which was itself a record year. So as it suggests, it must surely be a bright idea to demonstrate that financial services are essential to the solution, to our way out of recession and back to sustainable growth. To help understand the current perceptions of the industry, the City UK recently commissioned some research through YouGov. It found that the general public, as one might expect, had a particularly negative view of government bailouts and bonuses, while the agriculture and health sectors were seen as the most positive contributors to society, financial services had a net negative position along with public administration, and you'll be interested in this, Lionel, media. But there was an overwhelming recognition that a successful financial services sector in the UK is important for the economy. 84% agreed with this. In addition, there was, a strong, there was strong public support for government policies that led to better regulation rather than more regulation, 67%, and ensured the UK is an attractive and competitive place to do business, 55% agreed with that. Two-thirds of those surveyed believe that London's status as a leading financial centre is an asset to the UK, mainly because it facilitates international trade and travel and supports the economy. So let me finish by giving you a specific example how bright ideas in financial services can combat disease in the developing world. Around 2.3 million children die every year from easily preventable diseases such as diphtheria and yellow fever partly because there has been no predictable long-term funding for immunization in these countries. The International Finance Facility on Immunization is a UK charity that was launched in 2006. Normally, aid agencies receive annual grants 
for immunization programs and can therefore never be sure of what they will receive in future. This charity secured pledges from seven countries to contribute $5.3 billion over 20 years. This allows it to raise funds by issuing bonds that will be repaid by the promised annual payments. The first bond was issued in London, raising a billion in November 2006, and more than a billion has since been raised, with further issues sold to private investors in Japan and 266 million sterling um, in the UK. These funds provide immediate cash for vaccines and support health services in poor countries, doubling the amount of money spent on immunization since 2006. This has helped, for example, to avert a potentially devastating setback to the 20-year fight against polio around the world. The charity aims to raise $4 billion on capital markets over the next 10 years, enough to support the immunization of another half a billion children. A great example of UK financial services in motion. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Uh, our next speaker needs very little introduction. She's Martha Lane Fox. Uh, as you know, she uh, co-founded lastminute.com, uh, but more recently has become the UK's digital champion. She's also set up a number of her own uh, new businesses, including uh, Antigone.org.uk, which is a grant-giving foundation we've been hearing about charitable work recently. She is the director, too, of Marks & Spencer's Channel 4 Television and Mydeco. Martha. Well, unsurprisingly, my bright idea is that we should all be striving for a 100% connected, networked UK. And the reason I feel so passionate about this isn't just because of my lastminute.com heritage, but because I think that business can now teach government and the remaining people who are not yet engaged with technology a huge amount about its benefits, and that actually everybody wins when everybody's online, and that's the key bit. Uh, a year ago, or just under a year ago, I was asked to look at the digital divide in this country. You may not know, but 10 million people have never used the internet. Of those, about 4 million are also from the lowest socioeconomic groups. And alarmingly, there are another 5 million who've only used it once and haven't gone back to it. So that's a pretty big chunk of our population who are disconnected, who aren't engaging in the same conversations as the rest of us. And what I feel absolutely certain about is that by taking some of the things that business has gone through in the last uh, 10 years since the internet became a somewhat troublesome and disruptive part of everybody's business models and applying them to how we think about the rebuilding of our society over the next 10 years, we can absolutely create some exciting change. I'm an optimist and I've seen both uh, at the micro level and the macro level the incredible impact that the internet can have on people's lives. The numbers speak for themselves. People who are online are 25% more likely to be in employment. When they're in employment, they'll earn 10% more. Their feelings of vulnerability go down by 80%. Their confidence goes up by 60%. I've seen it again and again. People have said to me, not only I wouldn't have a job without the web, or I wouldn't be able to look after myself, or I'd feel dis uh, excommunicated from all my family, but people have actually said to me, I'd be dead without it. I've pulled myself back from the most difficult situation and engaged again with society because the internet has enabled me to. All of that has compelled me to continue um, fighting to get the UK to a place which no other developed country has yet managed to do, 
which is really pushed beyond the kind of 75% plateau in penetration of broadband and take-up of the internet. Imagine what happens when we're 100% connected as a country. Think about your business. If everybody was on email apart from one person in the corner, or if a bunch of people in the corner weren't on email, how much difference that creates when everybody has access to those same tools. And yet we don't think about that in terms of our society and the infrastructure we create. And the good news is it really isn't that hard. Uh, having built a dot-com business at the uh, late 90s and then survived a really hideous car crash, I can tell you, getting everyone online feels like a breeze. And we've got all the tools we need. We've got all the places we need, GP surgeries, schools, community centres, libraries. We've got all the people we need. We just need a concerted effort to do so. And that's why I'm using the commercial sector via a campaign that we started called Race Online for 2012 to bring some of uh, its resources, talent, skills to make sure that we fight to get 100% connected UK, because the prize is a big one. Not only do the individuals benefit, but the government benefits. The cost savings that we're trying to get out of the process of government will only happen, I believe, if we really fundamentally and completely embrace the digital revolution. And that means in the far corners of the Department of Work and Pensions through to the remote areas of Barnsley that I visited. That's it. Well, well, we'll come back to the, um, the, this notion of whether the, how far the internet is, as you would describe, a great empowering force, and how far there's perhaps other sides of the business which, um, shall we say, are challenging. But we can come back to that. Um, next, we have Barbara Ann King, Head of Investments, Barclays Stockbrokers, Barclays Wealth. Um, she was appointed Head of Investments in 2008 responsible for research, investment strategy, and marketing in the development and management of customer propositions across the UK's leading stockbroker. Uh, she's also on the management and executive committee. Uh, so, over to you. Thank you very much. Well, I have to echo everything that's been said before, so I do hope we have somewhat of a debate after this. But, um, you know, as Dan Clara said at the beginning, you know, the financial services industry um, have a, certainly have a duty, I think, to, to innovate um, through the business that we operate collectively. And, of course, that's a very broad definition. But, you know, specifically coming back to banking, um, you know, Barclays, as many of you will know, or certainly many of you will know after digesting your daily press today, you know, we've, we um, have a history um, of being at the forefront um, of innovation, um, having bought the first ATM and Barclays cash to everyone in 1967 um, and various events that have happened since. For me, for me, innovation uh, in our business world, our collective business world, is really about enabling creativity. So, you know, the great idea I think is already here. I think we are, we have a community of people through the internet um, that's now evolving into social media, which is in itself a topic of discussion in our industry in particular. Um, but it is really about making both people that work within the industry and ultimately the clients and our shareholders able to be creative, be productive, and actually effectively live their lives the way they need to. We are in increasingly global, yet we need to be local, so we have to be global. Um, we are 24-7, our clients are on the move constantly, and so having tools at your fingertips that enable you to live your lifestyle are really is really what the heart of all this is about. Um, I think it's William Gibson who invented the term cyberspace that said, 
um, that basically the future is here, it just hasn't been widely distributed yet. And I think that that's probably very true in many camps, but actually the pace at which we move now um, with innovation is being called on by our clients. Last year, as many of you know, was a very challenging, difficult, turbulent year for many uh, customers and also for the industry. But what we were able to witness in that through, through um, digital, effectively, um, is people educating themselves through the use of the internet, people hungry and thirsty for research, um, accessing investment product, finding ways to capitalize on the markets. And actually what we saw is a tremendous learning curve um, across a varied uh, client base. So for me, it was, a, it was an interesting environment to watch um, as somebody who was providing product and services to clients in the industry and actually watch clients get better and better at what they were doing. So for me, the bright idea is here. It's just how we take it from here and how we really mobilize um, and provide services for clients in this growing global community. Oh, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you for one bright idea, a practical idea, but you can think about that yes. just for a moment okay. before. <laughs> we'll move to Lucy. Um, everybody knows Lucy. She is the management uh, columnist, distinguished columnist, award-winning columnist at the Financial Times, as well as an associate editor. Everybody reads her Monday column uh, on management life. She's worked at the paper for almost, actually I won't say, as long as I have. Uh, we joined within weeks of one another. Uh, she served as Brussels correspondent, Lex writer, energy correspondent, but really her metier is to understand and explain management. Um, she's written books on management and I think her latest foray uh, into giving everybody a broader understanding of what management and office life is really about is uh, a work of fiction on office affairs. <laughs> Lucy, over to you. Okay, thanks for that, Lana, and I really appreciated the book plug. Um, now, when I was told to come up with some bright ideas, my heart sank to my boots. Um, bright ideas, God, nothing makes your mind feel more blank than being told to come up with a bright idea. So I sort of chewed on my barrow for a bit. And then I thought, actually, I don't think bright ideas are what business needs. Um, I think bright ideas are quite easy and you don't need that many of them. Um, the really hard thing, as you know, Barbara was saying, is making the blinking things work. Um, you know, th and that's in a sh that's a shame for an evening like this evening because it's much less fun to talk about those sort of dull things that we all spend our lives doing and thinking about. But I realise that's not quite good enough, and I, I'm very threatened by Lionel saying to Barbara that in a minute he's going to nail her to the wall if she doesn't come up with one. So I'm sort of slightly, uh, slightly playing for time, as you can hear. Um, and while I do that, I'm going to tell you that my alter ego, Martin Lukes, comes up with bright ideas every week, and that's maybe why I've got such a downer on them. Um, his latest brighter idea is um, taken from the new dean of Harvard Business School, who says that every manager should um, take a Hippocratic oath, which is one of the crappiest ideas I think I've ever heard. But um, Martin wants to um, escalate that one, as he would say, um, so that every Every employee takes a Hippocratic oath, so we can perhaps think about that. But anyway, when I got the thing yesterday, the email, and I was panicking about my total absence of bright ideas, um, I looked down the list and it goes, um, Dame Clara, Lucy, 
Barbara Ann, Martha, Darcy. And I thought, A, I must say, I thought people called Darcy were ballerinas. Um, <laughs> and maybe this Darcy can yeah, maybe this Darcy can wear a skirt and a wig for the purposes of of, um, of the discussion. But I thought, are women a bright idea? Now I sort of vaguely object to the idea of women being ideas. But still, if you just sort of bear with me for a second, I'd like to point out this is the first panel that I've ever spoken on that isn't one of those unbelievably tedious things about diversity where um, nearly all the panelists are women. So what does that show you? Well, alas, I think it shows you absolutely nothing um, because I, do <laughs> um, I think it shows that a lot of the people on the panel are maybe Julia... Hobbeswoman's friends. But anyway, <laughs> moving right along, moving right along, let us just suppose that there was a significance to the compo composition of the panel. What would that mean? Would that be a good idea for business or not? Now, there are loads of studies that show you that they have this ghastly thing called the um, asset to estrogen ratio. And even respectable companies like McKinsey have been big on this. Shame on them. Um, that claim to show that companies that have a preponderance of women do better. Now, in a way, I'm very, very strongly in favor of this because I'm also on the board of Admiral, um, which is an insurance company. And since I joined the board uh, three and a half years ago, the shares have outperformed the FTSE 100 index by, I think it's last time I checked, 239%. So um, I think we can say that's proven. But actually, it's of course complete nonsense. We don't have any, there isn't, we don't have large enough numbers to, to nail this as an idea. There are far too many other things going on. So the, all the evidence that we have is qualitative. So the thought I will leave you with is with a preponderance of women on the panel for you to judge whether this is actually going to make any difference to the nature of the discussion that we have this evening or not. And I'm not expressing a view one way or another. Thank you, Lucy. We'll come back to that. <clears throat> when you said you didn't have any bright ideas, I was going to say you're fired, but actually that would be a big mistake, <laughs> a very big mistake. Um, our next speaker is Darcy Wilson-Reimer. Uh, he's not a ballerina. He's the managing director of Starbucks Coffee Company in the UK and Ireland, and he joined Starbucks um, as a regional vice president in April 2007, currently assumed his role in August 2008. Before that, he worked at Unilever Ventures for three years, and he also brings 19 years of experience in executive roles at Yumi Brands. Is that, did I pronounce that correctly, or is it just Yummy? Yum Brands. Yum. Somebody can't, yum. Right, yum. I've just realized I should put my glasses on. It's an exclamation mark afterwards. <laughs> yum Brands, go for it. Okay, so uh, I feel the need to respond to being a woman. I just want to let you know that in 1965, all Darcy's were men. And the, uh, the, the migration to Darcy being a woman's name, which I have a huge problem with, uh, happened uh, later on in my life. Um, and, uh, and I'm also going to, Lionel, if that's all right with you, uh, not put forward any bright ideas because I'm going to hide behind what Lucy said and, and, and uh, let you know that it's really a bad idea. Uh, but I do have two themes that I wish to um, uh, put forward. Um, the first one is... Uh, uh, how 
We need to innovate, but the way in which we need to innovate uh, is changing and needs to change. And the second theme uh, is particularly in this time of uh, recession or financial uncertainty, uh, more than ever, the notion of values uh, in a company is, is exceptionally important. So if I start with the theme of innovation and how innovation uh, needs to change, um, I think that uh, innovation needs to be at the heart of any business. And if you look now um, at any successful business that's uh, been around a while and you go back 10 years, the business looks very different from how it looked 10 years ago. And I, I would say that if there's a business, um, if, if you don't innovate, then what's going to happen is that best you'll stagnate, you'll probably decline, or at worst, um, you'll disappear. Um, and I think that in, in our world of uh, uh, consumer products or uh, consumer brand, uh, being where we see and talk to our customers every day, uh, in, in old money, what we used to do is we might have an idea or we might need an idea. So we'd go out and we'd do consumer research and we'd do uh, quant research and qual research and focus groups, uh, etc. But with the, uh, with the new generation, with digital, um, but also with uh, just an ever-changing um, uh, values in society, that's no longer relevant. Um, uh, a few years ago, we uh, launched a um, thing called mystarbucksidea.com. And uh, this really changed uh, massively the way in which we engage with consumers, but also how we innovate and evolve our business. Uh, so very briefly, how it works is you, uh, you, you, you sign up, you log on, and you just post your idea on My Starbucks Idea. And uh, everybody else sees your ideas, and our customers basically vote. And very quickly what happens is the ones that people really want come, come forward and the ones that are, are perhaps less important to others uh, go back. Um, and and uh, since the uh, onset of this, we've had uh, over 90,000 ideas come through. But we've changed many things in the business and we've, we've learned to listen and engage with our customers. The, the loyalty program that, that we introduced uh, was the first idea. It was that When we launched the site, that was the first thing that came came forward is we want some kind of uh, loyalty scheme and we launched it but as we launched it we then again got feedback on that and we've iterated it uh, several times um, and so we have to engage um, people are talking about us online and you have to decide as to whether you want to participate uh, in that or not another example of innovating in a different way uh, for those coffee lovers of you, uh, you may know we introduced a product called Flat White, which is just a very short, strong, creamy, um, somewhere between a latte and a cappuccino. What we noticed in London was the uh, independent coffee shops started to sell this product. And our store managers just in and around Soho were telling us that um, customers were coming and asking. And we just let them go. Well, if you know how to make it, just make it. Uh, and then we realized that this was an idea we needed to listen to it. You couldn't get it in Aberdeen, so we launched the product um, and we, we took this uh, nationwide. But the way in which we did it was very different from the past, which is um, we uh, trained a few people who went out and trained more people and we said to the store, you need to learn how to do this, here's how you do it. And when you're ready and when you've perfected this new, this new drink, then you can put the sign up saying now selling flat white. Whereas historically, we would have researched it, uh, we would have uh, 
done a marketing campaign, blanketed everywhere, but, but the world's changed. And it started from listening to customers in a small group of people, listening to our store uh, people, and then a grassroots type campaign up. Um, and uh, so moving on to my second theme, I think particularly in times when money becomes tight for consumers, uh, I think what we're hearing from customers and what we notice is people want to do business with uh, companies that share their values. And, and what people are doing is they're very conscious about where they spend their money, more so uh, than they've ever been in the past. And I think what companies need to do is to make sure that this runs through the DNA of the company. It's not an add-on, it's not something else you can do. And that people are then uh, empowered. You're recruiting against it, you're innovating against it, and then people are empowered to make decisions uh, and run with it. So innovation and companies need to have values. <clears throat> um, before I throw this open to a discussion of the wider audience, I've got two thoughts. One is a big one, which is what Martha said, which is this passionate embrace of the internet and to understand that in times of distress and disruption in a way that's the time that big ideas come along whether it's jazz in the depression or, or whatever so kind of it's it would be interesting to listen to the panel and you've got about 2.2 seconds to think about this um, what 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 are the real opportunities practical opportunities you see in your businesses through the internet but before we come to that I just want to establish one thing. Ask each of the panel whether it's true that bright, you can get bright ideas from the non-executives, the people lower down the food chain. And how do you do that? Because we're not very good at it at the FT. So we want to learn. Uh, yeah, so I, I so I'm absolutely strongly believe that all of the ideas and anything that a company needs to do all of the answers are within inside the company, either with your people or with your customers. All of the answers that you need are there. And the question is, is how do you go about uh, unlocking that? Um, and I think there is no silver bullet or you have to have a systematic way of talking to people. And I think what's changing um, today is uh, people, are, and particularly, you know, in Starbucks, our partners, our employees, they, they want to talk to us in many different ways. It might, some want to talk to us through social media. Some want to talk to us uh, through email. Some want to talk, and you have to find a way that you can unlock that. Um, a simple way that we do it is, um, so on the mystarbucksidea.com, we've also got a, a partner section so our employees can filter ideas, but also... Um, it's ingrained within us to be able to listen. So just today, uh, literally prior to coming here, um, I attended what we call a partner blend meeting, which is a mix of, uh, of um, employees from all, all levels, uh, where we get together uh, every couple of months, we do open forums, and we just listen. We, we, there's no agenda, they set the agenda, and we turn up and talk. Um, Every time I will do an announced visit in the field, I will meet and there'll be a group of 40 or 50 people turn up and just say, what's on your mind? What would you like to talk about? Lucy, you're at the end. Oh. Um, Barbara, go on. No, I mean, I echo. What, I think, where do you get ideas well, from? I think, it, I mean, the, the heart of all of this is communication and it's about, it is about drawing that inspiration. It's often forgotten by a lot of businesses that you get so, uh, you know, involved in building your product, you forget that people that are building your product are also consumers somewhere else. So, 
you know, I do think, I mean, we certainly um, use this tactic as our bright idea, um, you know, earlier on in the year. And um, what we started to do was run some of the development meetings with the most junior people in the team. So not only the most junior people, they've grown up in an internet generation, they have a different way of approaching the world, um, they talk to each other through Facebook rather than telephone each other, you know, it's just a very different feel. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly important actually to draw on that experience. And they're all retailers of product outside, so um, that's really how we're doing it, I think, already in the banking industry. Okay, Martha? I think I feel as though I've dropped from another planet. I come from a world where this just isn't so complicated you know I don't come from a world where there are endless hierarchies where you don't talk to each other and where the person who is doing data entry to book the tickets to do the flights on the website isn't sitting on the end of my desk so you know I think if you come from a culture that is so different to a big corporate long standing hierarchical company you just come at it with a whole different bunch of views which is I have no idea if I'm right let's give it a whirl if you tell me I'm wrong and have a better idea let's give that a whirl too and of course you have to prioritize and you have to give some structure around those things but each idea is as valid as another and crucially I mean Barbara mentioned customers customers have loads of ideas as well and you ignore them at your peril and that I think is one of the distinguishing factors right now between companies that are being sufficiently disrupted and companies that just aren't and will die. Clara? Well, I think one of the great things about running a business is that you know you can decide what culture you want to create um, and then you just do it and you know clearly you have to understand the culture of the business that you're inheriting um, and then you need to have a very careful plan that ensures that you are taking very deliberate actions in order to change that culture to a more open, more communicative, um, and more innovative culture. And I have to say, when I was at the exchange, I was, I was really um, shocked by how easy it was to create an environment in which people felt they could be creative. And mm -hmm. the number of ideas that bubbled up to, you know, through, through the organization, up upwards was just um but you spent I mean, most of your time uh, didn't you spend wonderful. most of your time actually fending off takeover battle yeah but the, the point mean, is you, you cannot fend off takeovers mm -hmm. unless you're running a highly successful business with people who actually run the business while you and you know your finance director and a couple of others are dealing with this incredibly time-consuming process of corporate activity so the fact that we were able to do that essentially says, you know, this was a team that was absolutely focused and performing at an extremely high level because unless you deliver the results, you haven't got a hope in hell of defending the business. Mm. But it isn't, it, it isn't difficult. I, I think where I have, um, you know, some sympathy and, and maybe some admiration for, for people who do this well is when they're running enormous businesses. I mean, you know, the exchange, I was running a, a business which was mainly located in London and it was a relatively small team. So it was easy for me to have, you know, breakfasts and lunches with all sorts of people from the organization very regularly. And then you're listening and, and you get a huge amount of input. But when you're running a business that has 90,000 employees around the world, then I think it's a huge challenge to try and create a culture where you do achieve this. That must be quite, that must be quite tough. Mm -hmm. Lucy? Yeah, I mean, I was very interested in Darcy saying that, was it 90,000 ideas came forth, which sort of rather proves the point. Ideas are very easy. Um, which of those 90,000 was it? 
kind of as much the problem as getting the ideas out. 90,000 is way too many. Um, you probably wanted nine. So, so there's that. And then there's also Martha saying that each idea is as valid as any other. But it, that's just totally not the case. I mean, some ideas are really awful. Um, and some are very, very good. Martha, would you like to come back on it? <laughs> but it doesn't mean that the idea isn't worth considering. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't encourage people to have as many have ideas as they can, because some yeah. of the ideas are going to be good, but you don't need which ones you need to have. And I'd be fascinated to know at, at Starbucks what... I mean, you say that the customers can vote. They, they decide. The customers... But there is just... no other mechanism for sifting through the 90,000, and do the customers have time <laughs> to read 90,000 ideas? No, of, of, of course we, we're... Not 90, you don't get 90,000 at once. This is, right, this is over, the, over, the, over the course of time. But, but you have to be engaged, uh, actively uh, talking to customers, yeah. and have... Uh, it's a different way of working. But, but, you but, of course, you have to filter mm. uh, yourself, and you have to decide which are the ones... But is it the customer ultimately that's making that decision? Or actually is it the senior management of Starbucks that in the end says that's the good one and that's not? Well, I think as we've already heard uh, said, ignore customers at your peril. Yeah. Um, and generally, customers tell you what they want. Uh, and you can, uh, I mean, as a business, ultimately you have to decide whether you're going to listen mm. or, or not. Um, but it's not, um, it, you know, it's not overly difficult to um, filter through what customers are telling you and decide on the big ones. But you do, you have to filter, you have to decide how much it's gonna cost, what, what's the ease to And of course, one of the big things for us is if you have, um, uh, so in my world, it's 700 stores and, and uh, 9,000 partners. How do I get the, the message down to all of those people in terms of what we're gonna implement and why? Martha, how, uh, go, go, yes. No, I was just going to add, every idea is valid because unless you create an environment where people feel as though each idea is going to be taken seriously, then the ideas will yeah. stop and no, you will be undermined. Yeah. So I feel passionately that they can be rubbished in two seconds, yeah. but you've got to make people believe that they will yes, be taken no, seriously no, for that, that two seconds. But there's that balance between democracy and anarchy, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, yes, at some point one like has that. to say... That's you, an exciting course to steer. You've never said to one of your employees or executives, I'm sorry, but this is not a Polish parliament. <laughs> I, I haven't used that day. exact line, no, <laughs> not that exact line. Okay. Um, come on, let's let's have before we throw this open. I still want to. I'm going to come back. Ma Martha gave this wonderful, passionate uh, articulation of a vision about 100% connected UK. So, if that were to be the case, and it may, and it's going to be the case probably in the next few years, what? How would that affect your business? And how? What bright idea would you? Um, promote to take well, advantage I mean, I, of that. I think it's already relevant in our business. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. I, I talked earlier about, you know, if you look at, just I'll just take our brokerage business as a component of it. You know, we're dealing with 400,000 clients who are, who are trading stock shares and various other products every single day. They're self-directing, they're reading research, they're validating it, they're going online. So it's already very relevant and it's already a very big part of our business. As it grows, which I do believe it will, and I do believe that the generations are already making that happen. So whether we whether we want to admit it or not, they're going to take they're going to take the decision, at, at which comes back to customers driving driving business forward. Um, you do, know, do you think though that the the, the public 
um, more and more members of the public will, for example, take more responsibility for the management of their portfolios. I think it's rather because they'll be constantly online and turning themselves. I think it's still about choice. So there will be there will be uh, different people that will take different mechanisms to buy their product, as there is in any industry. Um, there will always be people who want to validate their decisions through others, and that's where the power of, advi of advisors come in. So do I believe there'll be no human interaction? No. Um, but, however, the presence of online and actually the growing form of social media and community and actually customers talking to each other to validate um, is actually what's changing the industry. So for me, the, you know, the, the evolution of the idea, I think, is actually how do we make that community connect in a secure way that enables our clients to access product and information, um, but also doesn't, doesn't um, you know, stop the innovation, which I think is, is happening. Um. Clara, I mean, the London Stock Exchange was increasingly being de disintermediated by these new um, flash trading, uh, fast network, electronic networks, um, and that was a sign of the, the way technology can completely transform or, or at least challenge an established business. I mean, we, I could write a short book on it, on the, obviously, on the news <laughs> business. Um, so what do you think about Yeah, like, well, I, I think actually what's happening at the exchange is a bit more complicated than that, but the exchange recognized straight away um, that, you know, the, the technology was absolutely central to everything it did because if you're running very efficient systems, then you're essentially reducing the cost of capital because you're facilitating a massively increased throughput which uh, develops liquidity, which is vitally important. Um, actually, the you know the what's happened at the exchange is not so much technology related. It's more about the relationship between the intermediaries and the exchange itself. So there's always been a you know a particularly complex relationship there, which MIFID, which that MIFID directive, um, you know, opened up in a way that that sadly hasn't actually created more efficient markets. But coming to the point that, um, you know, that I think uh, you asked Barbara, I think what's so extraordinarily important about, about the internet is the extent to which it creates tremendous cost efficiencies. And one of the things that I found particularly interesting when at the exchange we took over Borsa Italiana was um, the extent to which retail trading in the Italian market is much, much greater than it is in the UK market. And that's completely counterintuitive because, you know, obviously the UK has a very proud history of developing equity markets. And yet, you know, the, the fact is that more individuals in Italy trade equities than individuals in the UK. And the main reason for that, in my view, is it's much, much, much cheaper to trade equities in Italy than it is in the UK. Because in the UK, you have these entrenched, um, you know, systems of, of uh, you know, brokers and retail service providers that add massively to the cost of a transaction. In Italy, what they do is they just go straight into the market through the internet. And I, I think if, you know, if we are 100% connected, it not only has tremendous positive implications for the UK's competitiveness within the global economy, but it will continue to create massive efficiencies within the UK itself, cost efficiencies, all of which drive productivity and growth. Mm. Um, I'm going to just throw this open now 
to questions from the audience. My question is to... I'm Sophie Gunter. I'm with EI. Um, it's to Martha. It's all very well having or aiming for 100% connectivity, but the older generation, um, either... I mean, my parents are uh, 1780. My, step, my stepfather never saw a computer and would like to, but he can't see very well. And um, I'm giving a personal example because it's what I have to offer. And um, my mother, when her laptop doesn't work, doesn't know what a modem is. I mean, I've told her, but there are people who don't have children who can keep them up to date with technology. And it's the same with mobile phones. They need big phones with big buttons and white on black and yep. customer service that isn't call centers. Absolutely. And uh, roughly, there are probably, if I'm thinking about the 10 million who've never used the internet, I would say at least four of those 10 million who are over 65. And of that, there will be, I think it's around 25% who've got severe needs and helps. I look at it in a different way, which is I think that to get to 100% connected UK, it's either got to be you or you by proxy, i.e. someone helping you. And there may be a group of much, much older people for whom it's just a bridge too far because you're 85 plus, you're old, you can't see, you can't be bothered, you might just always do it through your grandchild, your carer, your whatever. But I think that's still not a reason to stop. I think there's then a really interesting uh, statistic I saw recently which said that by um, 2017, if I didn't do anything and none of the projects that we're all working on didn't happen, I think everybody of working age would be online. I believe I can bring that forward to about 2015, so bring it forward by a couple of years. But what happens then is that the older generation who's not online, that is the main bulk of, of the problem. And so I think it's really worth now trying to prevent anybody going into retirement who's not able to use the internet because the benefits to them and to us as a society are enormous. And I think that's a very achievable aim and one that would actually be uh, something quite tangible and quite possible in a short space of time. But just to finish, because I'm rambling around the, the point, I, I absolutely take the point about older people, but I also take to heart the many, many older people that I've now met on my sort of crazy semi-royal visits around the country who said to me the most heartbreaking and inspiring things. You know, I met one woman of 85, 85, who got online through her local library, you know, from a really very um, underprivileged background. She hadn't really been to school. She'd kind of worked about six different jobs. And she said to me, she looked me straight in the eye, and she said, only when I was 80 and I got on the internet did I realize I had an inquiring mind. You know? It's worth fighting for as many people as possible. Next, on the other side. I guess um, w w sort of one thought I've got is um, this is quite a comfortable envi environment and we're, I guess, in probably all of us are connected with business and we're sort of talking to the converted, but probably you could step back and say the share price of business in general is probably quite low at the moment post-recession. And um, I really enjoyed what um, Dame Clara had to say in terms of talking about the positive side of the financial services sector and I just wonder if one bright idea would be for you know business leaders um, to be a bit more engaged and a bit more um, engaged with the public in terms of defending what they do and, and talking about the positive side not necessarily dressing it up around some sort of CSR campaign but actually talking about the virtues and the practical differences that are being made um, I think that's something that's absent particularly in the financial services sector um, with you know, people hiding behind a few nominated spokespeople. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I think that 
CSR is slightly the problem because I think that business people think as soon as they think, well, I'm going to sort of prove that I'm worthwhile, they start talking about something that's got nothing to do with business and what they actually do. And I think that's really a problem. And that for people to say, actually, you know, we make a financial newspaper, you know, we're, we're a bank or, you know, car insurance, there are quite good stories to tell about all of those services that people need. And that I think it's particularly bad. British businessmen are just hopeless at communicating that point. I mean, it is also a, a very, very difficult time, um, a particularly difficult time. And, I, you know, I do think that uh, not business in general, but certainly the, the finance world doesn't currently have what I would call permission to speak. You know, people, you know, they, there isn't a listening context for them to speak into. Um, and, you know, the atmosphere has been so negative and there's so much misinformation and disinformation out there. Uh, you know, the focus on remuneration is a, is a case in point. You know, I, I think if you asked, you know, someone, you know, out there in the West End, you know, what they thought about remuneration, uh, you know, they would have a particular view, which would be a million miles away from the reality, the way in which remuneration is structured in the city. And, um, you know, that, that has made it particularly difficult. But it's got to change, because if it doesn't change, we don't have a sustainable recovery. It really is as simple as so, that. So, just to be clear, you, you are suggesting that, in general, people are overly generously compensated in the financial services sector vis-a-vis -vis other parts of the economy? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I must have I'm not, I'm, I'm not. I'm not, making, I'm not making a judgment on that. What I'm saying is that, um, uh, well, first of all, focusing on remuneration is, is focusing on the symptoms rather than the causes of the crisis, okay? So that's, that's one really important point. So it doesn't actually solve any problems, okay? That's, that's one point. Um, the second point is that there's a huge amount of misinformation out there. So, in other words, the way that bankers tend to be paid, the structure of that pay, is very, very different from the story that's out there, which is just really unhelpful. I mean, I'm only using that as an example because it's an example which is, you know, which is hot. Everyone has a view on this because there's, you know, there's so many stories about it. Um, and... What I'm saying is that creates an atmosphere in which it is actually very, very difficult for any senior person in financial services to stand up and speak because... Here's your chance. My chance, you know, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> um, I, but I think, you know, actually, to come back to the point of the bright idea, um, I, I actually wonder, actually, if it's news enough. For me, that's more the problem. I mean, I, I obviously work with lots of, you know, glorious colleagues every day who do lots of wonderful things for various communities and... Um, and that's not restricted to banking, that's across the industry, I think. Um, you know, and I think part of the how we make it positive collectively is actually to make it news and to make it interesting. Um, it, it, the focus is, ten, tends to be much more on the stories that hit the headlines, which are around remuneration, etc. But, you know, many firms, um, you know, from fund management firms through to banking, etc., are... You know, are making a bigger contribution, you know, in lots of other ways, and you know maybe that's how, you know one of the things we ought to focus on is actually how do we make that um, much more newsworthy in public um, in the right way, so that we set the right tone and it's it's an authentic, genuine tone um, to let everyone know that you know as much as we are here to provide a financial service, we're equally here to support the communities we operate in. Yeah. 
Martha, do you want to say anything? I, I say this because you, you, do, you have always, uh, as a businesswoman, been able to make a direct connection between uh, carrying out a business and actually helping people. Thank you. Thank you. That's a big compliment. Um, I think it's interesting to look at entrepreneurial businesses, and actually, I feel a bit depressed about, you know, it links what uh, Clara and Barbara are saying in that we put so much focus onto what a business is worth, how much people have sold it for, when they're going to sell it. We don't put any stock in longevity of ideas. And, you know, I can talk, I sold my business, so hands up. But if I look at the top 10 websites in this country, just an industry I know, one is UK, and that's the BBC. The rest are all US owned or have been bought by US companies. And that is a very bad state of affairs. And it does link, I think, back to how people view business when the headlines about it and when the people in it are much more focused on short term. And that's, that's one big problem. And the second thing I'd say is that I think that, and this is just a pet subject, we don't do ourselves any favors about um, the things that we talk about around the business sector. So more than anything else, people ask me, why don't you want to be one of the judges on The Apprentice? And I mention that because that program, to me, typifies everything we're saying. It puts this notion that business is about being unpleasant, ruthless, about making money, about basically stabbing the person next door to you in the back. And that is not the business world I know. And I will just share an indiscreet anecdote with you, which is before Lord Sugar was asked to do The Apprentice, Brent and I were actually asked to be the judges. It's when we were famous. And we said no, obviously we had a business to run and we always laughed that if it had ever been us to it would have gone like this because I was the person always that fired people so I'd have said you're fired and Brent would have said but I'm sure we can find you another job somewhere else in the company <laughs> which has always happened again and again and again so um, that's just my bugbear I don't think we present business well at every level the media and individually Darcy wants to have a quick comment and then we throw it up a quick yeah. one no I, I think the point about communication it depends on who um, you want to communicate to but if it's the public at large the best way to do the communication is by behaving in, in a way that's consistent with your values but also making sure that the product that you say you're going to deliver that you're delivering it in the best possible way in a way that's meaningful for them and that's how the public will get to know okay Simon Darling is UK business leading the way in bright ideas and particularly Lucy's point in applying them and it picks up on what Martha just said about the top nine in the internet industry, which is one I'm in. I'd, I'd put Skype in there as something that was London-based and is very successful. Um, is UK business leading the way? And to make it more specific for the panel, um, if so, why? And if not, why not? Uh, you sound like a White House correspondent with a oh God. <laughs> yeah. uh, Lucy, you want to have a quick one? Uh, is Britain, British business leading the way? Look, I have to say I've got no idea. Absolutely no <laughs> Thank idea. Thank you very much. Right, Clara. Well, we do have four world-class industries in the UK, okay, which is not bad for a relatively small country. Um, global financial services is still one of them, uh, biotechnology and pharmaceuticals, uh, media and culture, and right. Martha? the last one. No. <laughs> no, it's still controlled by too many men, and it's a closed network at the top. It's not entrepreneurial enough, and it's not nearly disruptive enough. Um, Adam Hibbert from Aviva. Um, no amount of new ideas can compensate for poor execution. And I think that there is a danger in this conversation that there's a kind of cosy get-out for leaders 
to say, oh, well, what we need is uh, a new idea because the old idea isn't working. And I, I, so I very much sympathise with Lucy's observations from uh, Martin Luke's. Mm. Um, and actually also your CR points, but that's another story. Okay, can right. I Can I just say... Uh, I, you're I, making an observation, though, not offering a question. So what's your question? My question is, it's 50 years now since McGregor came up with Theory X and Theory Y. Okay. We've been having this conversation for a hell of a long time. And sometimes when I look at conversations like this, I think everyone appears to be running up the down escalator. Are we actually making progress on this vision or are we just finding new ways to tell ourselves this story that we're opening it all up who wants to try and answer that question <laughs> it sounds like i can't quite work out why i'm here because i've anyway i'm no, happy no. to to pose the first dodge to the yep. question so i have no idea i've not been around long enough to know about That's your right. x and y theory but your point on execution is extremely well made and i yep. think it's crucial uh, in our business, we're only as good as the last cup of coffee we sold because people can go uh, elsewhere and, and so much choice. And, the, and the, um, in order to get perfect execution, you have to have engagement uh, with, for us, it's with our baristas. Okay, um, that's fine. I, we take the point about execution. I'm, I'm conscious there's a lot of people who've got questions here, so I'm going to be sugar-esque, sort of. Gentleman with a microphone. Shame. Yes, I'm Trey Barnes. I'm the Managing Director of Global Policy Partners. I have a comment, but it leads to a question for the panel. And it has to do with, I think there's a bright idea that's very important here in the UK that's been floating around for a while that's not going where it needs to. And I'd like to get the panel's reaction to it. And that is, this is a nation of entrepreneurs and small business, but the capital that they need is not getting to them. And how are we going to make that happen? And I'd love to have the panel's view. Thank yeah, I think Barbara's a good one on that. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, I think I think you know, for, uh, off the cuff, it comes back to communication. Actually, essentially, you know, and I and I support that. You know, there are lots of small businesses, great ideas. We've debated, you know, what's a good idea, what's not, and how we validate that. And actually, what is good? Who decides? Um, but, you know, I think it, it is about communication channels and I have to come back to, you know, the growth of the internet and being able to communicate information, research, etc. Um, you know, I mean, one of the things we've just done, for example, is simply, you know, not relevant at all to our business, but we've just put a page on our website that enables companies to just put themselves on there and talk to each other. It's not going to, it's not going to... But what about lending? <laughs> yeah. We don't I lend think that was the question. I know you don't. <laughs> Your bank does that. Yes, are the banks lending enough to small businesses? You just got a resounding no from your audience. So <laughs> You said that without your lips moving. Why aren't they, Martha? Is it just because they're because desperately short of capital? Are they risk-averse or what? Both, I think, isn't it? I mean, I'm certainly not an expert on the panel. I'd feel ridiculous, but I think that uh, it's both. I think it's the macro climate, and I think the any risk appetite has been severely dried up over the last year. You know, the exciting stuff that I see without, again, sounding as though I'm trying to brainwash you all with the wonders of the internet is the way that the internet is bringing up models that can bypass banks completely. So there's a couple of models where individuals can lend to individuals, where you can put money in micro-payments, micro-financing. You don't have to wait for the traditional institutions and bring it on, I say. And that's why we did that advertising, actually, was to enhance the service where you are a very small business. But there are lots of businesses who want to talk to each other about these things. Okay, well, that's, you know, that's so. good. Um, lady in the pink and then in the green. 
Hello, I'm Sue Primer and I'm independent. Um, I wanted just to loop back to Dame Clara. Um, you said two interesting things that struck me. You said that it was relatively easy to create the culture and you then later on said that there wasn't, you didn't feel that you had permission to intervene in public de debate or permission to speak because there's a strange atmosphere at the moment. And putting those two things together, my question is, why can't you create the culture? Why can't you create the atmosphere? Or maybe that atmosphere is in itself giving you permission, or more than that, demanding that people actually speak and do answer simple questions like whether or not banks are lending enough money. I think the atmosphere is the permission, and you can create the culture. Well, this is exactly what the City UK is going to do, and the City UK has just been set up. There was a meeting last week in which um, it introduced itself, if I can put it that way, to the city. So there is now a body that is going to do that. Um, I've decided that I'm going to be part of that process. I do think it's extremely important. Um, but there is a distinction between what you can do within a company as the chief executive and what you can do at large within a community that um, you know that has had so much misinformation that it isn't it doesn't want to listen clearly it's got to change it's vitally important that it does because until it does you know we're not going to get capital to businesses because you won't restore trust in the system and the confidence that's required to make the system work and one of the big big issues here and the one that concerns me the most is the extent to which regulation impacts that confidence in markets. There's a lot of change on the regulatory horizon, a lot. It is making the cost of capital much higher. It is probably going to ensure that liquidity remains tight for a very long time, which again impacts the cost of capital. So there's a lot happening which is very important. and. And, and that we need to get right. So, you know, this process that you're talking about, that you're saying needs to happen, clearly does need to happen. All I'm saying is, it's, you know, it, it is particularly difficult at the moment. Thanks, Clara. And Mary Marsh, the Clause Social Leadership Programme. I was a bit disappointed, Lionel, when we started, where you said that the big society and its baby steps were not really on the agenda today, because I came with a responsibility now for a new innovation for developing social leadership to hope that Bright Ideas, Business Leading the Way, was going to give me some inspiration for what, what I'm doing. So I'd just like the panel to uh, say what they think would be the most key points they think that the uh, social purpose organisations most urgently need right now to pick up the bright ideas from business and move forward. And I think that, yes, they're good at innovation, they're great at internet connectivity, many of them, and they've certainly got a very strong values base in a lot of their business, but there are other things perhaps you might want to suggest. Yeah, um, I shouldn't have said that. It was, uh, it, I should have been a bigger, broader. Who wants to offer some thoughts? Um, I'll start, I was, uh, lucky enough slash uh, intrigued enough, I guess, to be at the first kickoff meeting of the Big Society with the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister on Tuesday. And I very much uh, believe that none of it really adds up if you don't make sure that everybody is able to organize themselves using the internet. And again, I'm not trying to go around in the same circle, but to me, 
the first big idea for the big society has got to be that that society can use the tools that are out there to organize itself. And by preventing the most deprived communities or the communities that the big society theoretically wants to reach from not having access to those tools, you continue to go around in a circle that will mean it will never properly work. So I am completely sure, and will continue to badger everybody will listen, that the first step in order to create in any way, shape, or form a big society, whatever you think of that idea, is to create a network nation. I mean, the one thing we know about a big society is there's definitely going to be room for business in a, to play a big role. But I think that um, um, really a, a, a couple of things. One is that I think what business needs to do is to, is to provide uh, skills you know, de depending on which area it is or whatever, there are things that people can learn, even if it's not business skills. So I think right. that we have a role uh, around teaching. I think uh, the other thing is is that we, there's too many people doing things individually, and we need to get this notion of having all of these groups work together in a one plus one equals three, as opposed to everybody doing a little bit. Okay, at the back. Hi, good evening. Giovanni San Felice, Barabino and Partners. I've got a, a quick question for Dame Clara. Do you think that in Italy are still considering there was a bright idea, the merge between Borsa Italiana and London Stock Exchange. Well, I certainly hope so. It certainly was a bright idea for the London Stock Exchange. But no, I think it, I think, I think it was. Um, I mean, I'm not obviously as close to it as I was a year ago, but uh, it was certainly, I think, a classic example of a merger that was well done. And as most people know, they're very, very difficult to do well. In fact, 70% of all M&A fails. Yeah. So that one has succeeded, and I certainly hope the, our Italian friends are very happy with it. Good. Okay, in the middle here. Hi, Sharma Pereira. Um, I'm just very interested that all of you, with the exception of Darcy as we're going through the evening, have basically given us uh, a process update of where you are within your own businesses uh, in terms of leading the way. What we're not getting at all is any thinking that can be rolled out across sectors. So the sort of really big, bright idea, I mean, I know digital may lead the way, but, but what is there that's new? I, Darcy, I know that uh, Starbucks has, of course, recently rebranded, re I presume, as a result of the 90,000 ideas that came onto your uh, website, and I hope your uh, shares have gone up as a result. Um, but what are we thinking about in terms of a public face? Uh, Dame Clara has uh, spoken about being in a bad place. Well, that's because those members of the public who are not in charitable programs being helped by the financial industry, but are actually out there working for a living and doing their own thing, are extremely cheesed off with what has been happening okay. lately. This is a wonderful opportunity Fine. for a okay. big idea to Good. be rolled All right. out. What are they, apart from the ones that you mentioned to me that you couldn't mention because they were patented? Um, Lucy, you want to take that? I don't necessarily agree that it's the job of business to come up with great ideas in, other, in sectors other than their own. I think most people in business have a difficult enough time coming up with ideas that are good for their companies, let alone for their sectors, and, and less still for the world at large. So I would be inclined to start small first. 
Yeah, I mean, I, and I think just yeah, I, I would echo that, but I also think it, you know, there is the positive point to that is it, it is what one area we can grow, and I think it's m mentioned earlier, is sharing our expertise and information more broadly, and I do believe in that. So I think education, for example, into schools or you know teaching finance at a very young level, for example, I mean is schools valuable. surely this is yeah vital if we're yeah. going to have an education. And we do that. That's something we already do. So, you know, we are out there. I was actually with a, an advisory board yesterday with two 16-year-olds who were telling me what the future is going to look like. So, you know, we are doing that. Okay. Um, I'd like to give you a bright idea because that's what I thought I was subscribing to this evening. Uh, my name's Clive Booth. Um, and one bright idea, and it relates to the Hippocratic Oath that uh, Lucy mentioned. The first precept of the Hippocratic Oath is first, do no harm. And did you know that if you were going to open a business in this country, the first port of call that most people, and I think 80% of the people in the UK work for companies employing 10 or less people, the first place you end up getting sent to if you want to form a new business is Business Link. And it is absolutely <laughs> woeful as a place to get advice. So my bright idea is to get the panel, who are mostly representing big business, onto the advisory boards no. of Business Link and sort it out. <coughs> Martha just wants to make clear that she's not... not representing big business, sorry. Right, okay, so shoot right. business link. Uh, oh, improve it. Well, what would you do? What, what, I mean, you've had experience. You could tell us two things that you would do to improve it. I'd ask Julia's opinion first, because she just put her hand up. Only just very quickly, I wrote a piece in The Times a few months ago exactly agreeing with this point that uh, the government's idea of joining people up and linking them is doesn't seem to involve anything face-to-face. -face. So I think government sponsored and joined up with businesses large and small and networks, dare I say it, such as this, are not a bad place to start. Face-to-face -face networking, Business Link is basically a series of, as I understand it, web pages within web pages within web pages, which doesn't really hmm. help. We'll, we'll put our entrepreneur correspondent and try and see how his experience, and maybe that would come up with some ideas. So, Clara, sorry, yeah. To a, a point that the previous um, speaker made, which is that I think, you know, this is why political leadership is important. Um, and I think this is why the idea of the big society is important, because it does, I think, um, put out there the importance of personal responsibility, which I think is a big change, a big shift from the last 10 years of the nanny state. And that you know, that, um, I suppose, ownership of your own destiny is something which, you know, you can apply in all walks of life to all sectors of business in a way that should be, you know, very good for growth generally. Okay, there is a gentleman at the back. Yeah. Um, Edward Bird. Um, I, I, I've got a question really for Darcy and Lucy, which is around this, the relationship between the values of the organisation of the company and and innovation and and I'm and I'm just I, I guess I want to know are are these are that are our major British corporations having seen what happened to RBS and and company genuinely looking at the at their values and saying why is it that companies because I'm sure RBS had wonderful values on their website and a great mission statement but in truth their values were nothing to do with the values that they claimed to be and are we are we genuinely examining those values? Because I think that's very disruptive if we were genuinely honest about the fact that the boards of most of 
most big British companies actually have their values have nothing to do okay. with the state. Lucy, values. I think that once you start discussing your values at board level in that slightly panicky way, you've really, really lost it. I mean, I completely agree. There's no point at all in trying to do a sort of top-down thing on values. Um, it's much, much more complicated than that. It takes a very, very long time. Um, it involves hiring the right people to start off with and ensuring that every single thing that everybody in the company does, um, you feel is all right. There's no need to write that down ever. It's, it, I think it's most effective when it's not written down, Frank. Darcy? Um, and then we've got... So, so I think um, there's some companies... Uh, do really uh, have these values ingrained through, and clearly some don't. But I think one of the most important things and, and the big piece of advice I'll give to anybody who wants to do it, it's all around um, the way in which you get results are as important as, as the result themselves. So what we try to do is always uh, reward based on the way people get results, never for the actual result. Okay, last question. Uh, Ollie Barrett, make your mark with a tenner. Uh, we've just loaned 28,000 school kids 10 quid, and they have shown us some unbelievably bright ideas. And even as an optimist, when I look at big businesses in Britain, I am not impressed with the rate of big ideas. And I see some very plodding, frankly complacent organisations who should be fizzing and wanging and popping with the best ideas in the world, and I don't think we are. And my theory on this is that we're knackered, and we're not spending time with people dramatically different from ourselves. And I don't think it's good enough to lock ourselves in a room with our customers, because I think that way lies disaster. So what techniques have we got for spending time with people dramatically different and who, frankly, aren't our customers? Any comment? I, th I think the truth is, is there's no single way. You have to do it in a room. You have to do it on Facebook. You have to do it on Twitter. You have to do it on mystarbucksidea.com. You have to do it in stores. You have to do it you know, everywhere, and either you are that kind of leader that wants to do it and is engaged and you are participating in it, or you're not. And if you are, you'll, you're going to survive and, and thrive and, and get those big ideas. And if you're not, then uh, you're reliant on everybody else, and, and good luck. And can I add that Darcy has emerged as an amazing chief exec for being one of the few big chief execs who is on Twitter and uses it brilliantly. So I might add that. Thank you. Caramel macchiato for you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, this was uh, a great discussion, I think. Um, I came away, I'm not going to try and sum it up. What I would say is that the contributors were witty, open, um, informative. We should lift our sights a little bit beyond the present difficulties. Yes, the financial services industry is having a, it's coming out of a tough place, but it's better than it was in September 2008 when the system almost uh, melted down. And second, and this is not a political statement at, at all, it's just that we did actually see the seamless transition of power uh, in this country uh, just a few days ago. Uh, this wasn't, uh, and we saw um, some people in the civil service much derided take some very bold and bright ideas in terms of managing that transition, which was something really quite new and we should feel not too bad about that. And lastly, and I would say this as the editor of the Financial Times news organization, Martha's right. I mean, the internet, it's a once in a century transformational force and we've got to find out ways of best exploiting it uh, because there are tremendous opportunities, not just for the younger generation that we didn't talk enough about tonight, but I think also perhaps the older generation, especially as we're all going to live older. Thanks. Thank